Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're in week two of a series, Origins, which is a larger series. We're going through the Bible this year in the year of the Bible 2022, and we're going in chronological order. So this is the second week of this series, Origins, where we're starting from the very beginning. So last week, week one, was the book of Genesis, obviously. So then week two, if we're going chronologically, is going to be Job. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. Um, If you you are doing a year-long reading plan chronologically and you've already peeked ahead, you've probably already seen, wait, Job doesn't go after Genesis. Well, it does, and we'll talk about that, and then we'll see, I think, a lot of very good um, gleaning we can get from the book of Job and the story of Job. What I want to do just for a couple of minutes to start out here is get some background context about this book and the person from which the book is named Job. We don't know a lot about him, which is interesting. And what we do know, there's some controversy about this book of the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there is. So we're going to look at that just for a minute before we get into the content of the book. So the first question we want to ask is, when was Job written? don't really have a specific date or we have maybe a general timeline so most scholars would believe that job was written pretty late in the old testament era so we're talking maybe fifth century fourth century bc pretty late maybe one of the last books actually written down that is in the old testament okay so um the reason that we would think that is a lot of the material come, comes from sort of this idea of pain, suffering, justice, all that sort of thing, which in this time period, the 5th century, 4th century BC, the ancient Israelites have just come out of a terrible time of exile where they've been under the Babylonian rule. So this, they've been under foreign occupation for a long time. They're trying to rebuild their people now. And so this idea of suffering and pain and justice is going to be pretty high on their mind. And so someone would have then written this down. The question, though, a uh, second question, though, is when did this story happen? Now, it didn't happen probably, most likely, at this later date. It would have happened maybe a thousand or so years before, if not more. So it's believed that the story of Job actually takes, even though it's written, 4th or 5th century BC, takes place way, way before that during the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. Now, the main reason that we put these pieces in this timeline together is because of some of the nations and cities mentioned at the beginning of the book of Job. There's a little bit of geographical work in the first and second chapter here, and so it says that Job's from a land called Uz, U-Z, which we have some evidence to believe that that became Moab later on. But if we backtrack before Moab, before it was Uz, it was around the time of Abram or Abraham or at least his sons and grandsons in that early time period, before Moses, right? So then, though, another reason that we know that is because another people group mentioned in Job chapter 1 are the Chaldeans. They actually raid some of the fields that Job owned. Now, last week we talked about Abram. He was from a land called Ur of the Chaldees, which then 
hundreds of years later becomes Babylon, which now is modern-day Iraq. So we're putting these ancient cities and people groups together to try to place Job probably around the same time as Abram, if not maybe just after when his sons and grandsons might have lived. So it happened a long time before it was even written, which, you know, people have an issue, which here's the other question. Here's the controversial question that we'll tackle for a minute is, did this story actually really happen? Was Job a real person who really existed? There's, There's been debate since A long time ago, for a couple thousand years, about that question. Did this story actually happen, or is it more of an allegory? Is it more of a nice story? The guy has a name, and there's places mentioned, but, you know, it's just sort of this, like, if I were to talk about this thing, once upon a time in Canada, well, Canada's a real place, but the story I'm telling didn't actually happen. Is Is it that? So there's, let me give you a couple of reasons why people might say, no, Job did not exist, and this story did not actually historically happen. And then I'll give you a few reasons why you could say it probably, he probably did exist, this probably did happen. So two, one reason why people would argue against the reality of the person Job is because of the way in which the book is written and where it's placed in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So if you'll notice, we're doing Job second because of chronologically where it's believed to, when it's believed to have happened. But if you look where it is in the actual Bible, it's sort of in the middle of the Old Testament, or it's in like maybe the, the beginning of the middle part. And it's in the writings, okay? It's not in the historical part or the law part. It's not, he's not a prophet, we know that. So it's in the writings category, in the same category as Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and even Lamentations to another different degree. So people would say, well, it's the ancient Jews put it in that section, not where we were going to place it second after Genesis. It's not, in, it's not like Job is a part of Genesis, you know, like it fits after Abraham. So it's just a nice story that we can glean some good information from. Maybe the Holy Spirit inspired this person to write this story, much like Jesus would have told parables that didn't really happen. But that's all he did was tell stories about people and characters that didn't really exist to make a larger point. Maybe that's what Job is. And again, the style of Job is unique unto itself. So I don't know if you're familiar with any ancient Greek uh, literature, but if you've probably heard of Plato before, if you read Plato and you read Job, you would think the same guy probably wrote these. You have these three, four, five characters who have a dialogue, a conversation. All Job is, except for the first couple chapters, is a dialogue between Job and three and then four friends, and then at the end, God comes into the conversation. When you read Plato, it's just like that. Socrates is talking to this guy and this guy and this guy about the virtues of life, and they had this whole dialogue about justice or about whatever the, the topic is or politics, you know. And it's written in that way. It's a conversation. So one friend talks. We'll talk about the friends in a minute. One friend talks. Another friend talks. The other friend talks. And Job responds. They go for round two. All three talk. Job responds. Round three, two friends talk. Job talks. The fourth friend talks. Then God talks. And that's the end. So it's like this doesn't seem like the rest of the Bible in any way. It is unique unto itself. So some would say that's a reason that we would say Job is not a real story. He didn't really exist. Um, but we can still learn something from it. Now let's get to the arguments for Job actually existing and this actually happening. I mentioned already, he, it, mentions, it does mention specific places, ancient cities that really did exist in time periods. That's how we try to place him in that time period. So that would be a, a checkmark in the favor of he possibly, maybe, probably actually existed. 
Also, Job is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the prophet Ezekiel actually mentions Job by name, and he mentions him with two other ancient historical Jewish figures. So it's not like, oh, he, he mentions just Job as a cool story or a metaphor or a parable. No, he mentions him along with other people. And then James in the New Testament mentions Job as well with the prophets, He's putting them together in the same section about suffering and having patience like Job. The prophets are there in that same section. And so we don't argue, did the the prophets exist? Did they not exist? Were they real? Were they not real? And so he puts them with that, which would put that in Job's favor of actually existing. The other two things, the the first two arguments I I would argue are not problematic to the actual historical Job, okay? So the writing style is not a big deal. It doesn't mean that this didn't happen. Just because David wrote psalms that are totally unique in their form, we don't say, well, this guy, David, must not have existed because these aren't actual stories from the Bible. They're songs, right? So it's the same way. Now, we don't know who wrote Job. Maybe it was Job writing in third person. Maybe somebody a thousand years later in the exile had heard because the ancient tradition is an oral tradition. Okay, there's nothing's written down. You tell the stories. They would have recited the Bible stories for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until finally somebody thought, hmm, maybe we should write this down. And so having it written down later is not problematic really at all, and the writing style is not an issue either. There's different, all types of genres in the Bible. That's what makes the Bible very unique, is there is historical accounts, there are some parables that Jesus tells, there are, most of the New Testament is letters that the apostles wrote, so there's all types of literature, so this one being unique does not make it that it had to be basically a fictitious sort of story. So, all that to say, we're not completely 100% certain if Job existed, but I would lean on it's very probable that he did, and someone wrote his story down hundreds of thousands of years after he lived. It'd be like me trying to research and write about a person from the Middle Ages in England, okay? It's similar to that. I'm going to write down about their life and what happened to them and how they overcame their issues and struggles and problems and tell their story. So that's sort of how we would see Job. However, regardless of all of that, I just wanted you to kind of get that because it's not, so the words on the page are powerful, right? But I think what is, the more that we can get into the background of what's written there, the more the Bible opens up to us. The more that we understand this is a poem, I have to read it in a certain way. I can't read it in the same way that I read maybe a letter in the New Testament, or I can't read a letter from the New Testament in the same way that I'm going to read Genesis, which is a bunch of information and stories about people and their lives. So I think that if we approach the Bible in that way, it doesn't dumb it down. It doesn't decrease our faith in it. It actually, I think, enhances when we read it. So a little bit of background. So from time to time in different sections of different parts of the Bible, we'll talk about some background like that to help us to understand what's going on around what's written on the page to maybe help us understand what otherwise we would not. What I want to get into for the rest of our time, though, is the theme of the book of Job, the theme of the life of Job. And the theme of this is obviously suffering. So the book of Job, the story of Job, the life of Job is basically suffering 101. It is a master class in how to deal with suffering. So what we're going to look at as we kind of do a broad overview of Job, and I'm not actually going to read anything from Job until near the end. We're going to put pieces together from other parts of Scripture to enhance the overall story and idea and theme of Job. And then as as we get ready to wrap it up, we'll read 
uh, some of the book of Job, I think maybe, maybe the most important chapter in the whole book. What we're going to look at, though, today are Job shows us five realities of suffering. This whole conversation that Job has with his friends and then God gets involved shows us five realities of suffering that we can learn today. Hopefully, if we learn them, uh, it will be helpful to us. So let's get right into it. Here's the first reality of suffering. Reality number one, Satan and evil are at work in the world. I just want to start out with a nice, you know, bummer there to get things rolling here. Satan and evil are at work in the world. Another way to phrase that would be suffering is a reality in life. That's the first reality of suffering. It will happen. If it hasn't happened yet, you're probably very young and uh, you haven't experienced life yet. Uh, but if you have experienced anything in life, you have experienced some type of suffering. Now, not all suffering is equal. Some are different. We might say, well, compared to them, I'm not really suffering. That's a great attitude, but still to you in your setting, in your life, in your circumstance, you have suffered in some way. What we see at the very beginning of the book of Job is an interesting thing that Job doesn't know is going on. He has no idea this is happening, but in heaven, it says in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 that Satan approaches God's throne in heaven, and God's basically bragging on Job. Isn't he a very righteous man? Isn't he a very moral, upstanding man? Isn't he like uh, the specimen of all people? And Satan says, well, yeah, because you protect him from everything. His life is perfect. He's wealthy. He's healthy. He has a large family. Life is good. Of course people are going to praise you and serve you and be a moral person if their life is basically perfect. So Satan basically gives this challenge to God. He says, I bet you that if you let me harm Job, he will turn from you. He won't praise you anymore. If you ruin his little perfect life, he'll run away. And God says, okay. Now again, Job doesn't know this is happening. He's just living his life, doing his thing. And God says, okay, I will let you affect things around him, but leave him alone. You can do anything else you want to him except for touch him. Here, here let me just get to this, this word here for a second. So we, see, we read this word as Satan in the English. Let's go to the Hebrew for just a second. So in the Hebrew, it's the same letters. It's pronounced Satan, or sometimes it's Hasatan or Satanas. It's this idea. Now, we have an idea of what Satan is, right, or who he is or what he represents, that Greek, or the Greek, the Hebrew word there in Job 1 really means accuser. So the accuser comes before God and accuses Job of basically being weak. If you let me harm him, he will run away from you. If you let me, you know, mess up his life, he won't follow you and serve you as strongly as he is right now. So this accuser, that, that's going to become important at the end. So hold on to that, okay? The Hebrew there, Satan, is the accuser. So God allows suffering around Job, but doesn't allow suffering to Job physically directly yet. So in different catastrophic events, all of his children die horrific deaths. In different things, all of his property is destroyed. All of his possessions are stolen. All of his livelihood is burned to the ground, and he's left with him and his wife which I'm sure, if you know the story of Job, you would say he wishes his wife maybe would have had something happen to her too. Uh, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Job still worships God here. In the midst of losing everything and everyone except for himself and his wife, he still worships God. So Satan comes back. The accuser comes back for round number two. 
And he says, man, you almost had me, God. He all, he, that was very convincing of Job to still serve you and worship you. But I'm telling you, if you let me, if you let me mess with him physically, then, then his tune will change. He's, I'm going to make him squeal, right? That's Satan's attitude. So God says, okay, you can harm Job physically, but you cannot kill him. Once again, Job has no idea. This is ha- he just knows, man, everything is terrible now but I still believe that God is good. So then what happens is it says Satan affects Job with sores and boils from head to toe. He is covered in itchy, pussy, like runny, nasty, so terrible boils from head to toe. And that is where he sits. So he, may, he sits in an ash heap and he's just crying and he is crying out to God, but still he will not abandon his faith in God. This is where his wife comes into play. His wife has an idea. I have a suggestion. Curse God and die. It's encouraging. Such an encouraging wife Job had. Curse God and die. She does not have the same amount of faith that Job has, even though she's not physically. So if, if Satan were trying to accuse his wife, he'd be right about her. He, she, she's way gone. She's done. I'm done with this God thing. Curse your God. He'll kill you. You'll be out of your misery and agony. Job refuses to do so. Job never knew why he suffered, okay? It was a reality for him. Now, we know the larger story, the backstory: Satan and evil are at work in the world. But as Job will discover, that's the point of the book, trying to figure out why he has suffered. Now, in terms of our lives, we may never know why we suffer the things that we do. We may never know the cause. Most of the time, I think we probably don't know the source of our suffering, but we do know it's a reality nonetheless. We know it's a real thing. But we do know that the same two main sources are in some way affecting the suffering in the world and the suffering in our lives. It's either Satan or evil, or I would call it either Satan or just sin. So let's, let's look at a couple of verses from the New Testament to kind of flesh this out. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We are, at enemy, we are at war with an enemy. Satan, the same accuser of Job, is our accuser today. And he is out for blood. He is not playing games. His mission is to destroy everything and everyone that God made and that God loves. He's on a mission. So, so Peter says, stay alert, watch out for him, be aware. Then Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, writes this, Satan... Same word there, right? Who is the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So like in Job 1 and 2, Satan has some influence, I think a great influence, over this planet, over this world. I don't know why. This is one of the questions. It's called theodicy. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow this to happen? I don't know why God just doesn't squash Satan like a bug. He's going to eventually, but why doesn't he now? I do not know. The Bible does not tell us, right? It's just one of the things. That's why suffering is a reality. Satan is real. He is active, and he is, he is the little g God of this world. His mission, again, Paul says here, he's to blind people to deceive people, to, as he did with Job, accuse people. Man, if I push them hard enough, they will run from God. If I press them hard enough for long enough, they will abandon their faith. 
They're not strong enough to take it. They can't handle it. He's still doing that today. He tries to keep people from following God, trusting God, and worshiping God, just like he did with Job. But the reality is that many times, Satan just gets to sit back and watch. Because the other force at work is not just Satan, but evil or sin. Sin is uh, the cause of much suffering in the world. Because we're all fallen, we're all frail, we're all sinful, and sin fractures everything. Sin destroys everything. It ruins everything. We talked about last week, Genesis 1 and 2, God made the perfect world. He made it and saw that everything was good, just as it was designed to be, with no issues, no problems, no worry, no death. And then in Genesis 3, sin enters the world through man's disobedience, and then we come in line after that in our fallen sinful state. Sin causes suffering and pain in so many ways. Paul, again here in Romans 8, kind of fleshes this idea out for us. Here's how he explains suffering caused by sin. He says, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So what Paul is saying is that all the way back in Genesis 3, sin broke everything. It broke the world. The planet, it says, is even groaning. The the planet knows on some deep level that this is not how God made it to be. There are things that are broken and fractured and messed up. Sin caused even that to happen. Then, obviously, humans are fallen due to our sin. Relationships fracture because of sin. Our relationship with God fractured because of sin. It is a reality. So we await the day, Paul says, when that's no longer reality, when God makes a new heaven and a new earth, and we live there with him forever. But that ain't this planet. That ain't this earth. We're not there yet. And so suffering is a reality. Satan and evil are at work in the world. It's just how it is, unfortunately. Here's reality number two. We'll build upon this idea. Suffering reality number two is this. Being good doesn't keep away the bad. Being good doesn't keep away the bad. When you look at Job, in fact, it's his goodness that brought about more bad in his life. That's the whole crux of the deal with Satan. If I can cause suffering because he's so good, he won't stay good. He'll abandon God, abandon faith. That was the whole point. He pushed harder, the gooder, right, that Job was. Excuse my terrible grammar there, but that's just for emphasis sake, right? We ask this question even today. Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? We ask that all the time. It's a universal question. So I would quickly refer you to point number one. Suffering exists, period, full stop, end of story. Not just to good people, but to everyone. On some degree, people in general suffer universally. It's just a part of the human condition because we are fallen creatures. And here's the, the good and bad part of this idea. 
Unfortunately, I think sometimes we try to sell faith or view faith as God will solve all of your problems. God will keep you from all suffering. Okay? It's an escape plan mentality is what sometimes faith can be pitched as. If you have enough faith, you won't get sick. If you just have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. If you believe enough, you won't suffer. If you come to Jesus, he'll solve all your problems and take them all away in a moment, in an instant. That's just not reality. It's not true, and it's actually not faith. It's It's not the Christian faith at all. How do I know that? Let's go to Jesus himself here. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says this, I have told you all this, so this is at the end of a long dialogue with his disciples, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here's the underlined part. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus is talking to his closest followers, and he is guaranteeing them trials and sorrows. It's a guarantee. Just because you follow me doesn't mean that bad things may not happen to you. Just because you're a moral person doesn't mean you're immune from suffering. That is not how it works. The truth is, for the followers of Jesus and for Job, in some ways, their life would have been easier had they not been people of faith. Okay, Job, if he hadn't been so good and righteous, Satan would have picked on somebody else. So, His goodness didn't keep the badness. In some ways, it added to it. The disciples of Jesus are the same way. If they had not been so completely committed to the cause of the gospel and the cause of Christ, they would not have been martyred to death, right? They lost everything because of their faith or their goodness in this sort of way of thinking of it. So another really encouraging point here, while we talk about sufferings everywhere, sometimes more suffering may come in your life the closer you walk to Jesus. I know I'm not really doing a good job of pitching, uh, pitching faith today, but I'm trying to be honest in my assessment and how we read Scripture. When you look at the people who are closest in, strongest in their faith, closest to Jesus, uh, you see that they suffered a lot, more than they would have maybe otherwise. I think that's still true. I think that, that there's still some truth to that today. Now, there is good news. We'll come to that. We're getting to that, okay? We're getting to the good news. We're going to start bad and then get really good at the end here. But the point of faith, I just want to emphasize this before we move on. The point of faith is not to escape suffering. The point of our faith is to endure suffering. Because if we've already established everyone suffers, how about we have like a bedrock that will help us endure that suffering? How about we have a framework in which we can see it in a different way and make it through that? How about we have like access to a power source that supplies all of our needs even through suffering. How, why not? That's, I think that's, that's the pitch of the gospel. It's not that it, we escape suffering, but that we can endure it successfully. Speaking of enduring suffering, that's the third reality of suffering, and it's kind of a method to get through it. We see this with Job. The third reality of suffering here from Job is enduring suffering requires a support system. And now, you will, you, you will suffer on your own regardless, but I believe you can endure suffering better with a support system. So once Job's life falls apart and he's sitting there by himself on an ash heap with full of boils, all alone, broke, abandoned, everything, he has three friends that come and visit him. And that's their discussion is, is most of the book of Job. 
Now, these three friends are complicated people. There's a fourth friend at the end, but he's less important. He's a young whippersnapper, thinks he knows everything, and he's a know-it-all. I don't like that guy anyway. So there's, these friends are complicated. They do one thing really well. They do one thing kind of okay, and then they do a third thing that is awful. So let's go through that just for a minute here. So here's the thing that they do really well. As soon as they arrive at Job's house and see him sitting there in his grief, they just sit with him. It says they sit with him for a week in total silence. Because they, they, they see the grief on Job's face. They see everything. Like, there's nothing here. Like, you were a wealthy guy. You had a lot of, of huge family, a lot of possessions. And now you're by yourself sitting here looking nearly dead. And they just sit there. That's probably the best thing that they did. It only gets worse from there. And I think that this is an important point for us. When people in our lives are suffering, sometimes all they need is for you to sit with them. Especially Christians, we want to, and we'll get to this in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I need to say it. Sometimes we want to say, oh, you know, maybe this is the reason why, or this is why that happened, or let me just get through the theology of suffering real quick. That's not maybe what they need at the moment. Maybe they just need some, a shoulder to cry on. So let's be that for people that are suffering in our lives. They just need someone to maybe kind of cheer them up just by being there. Let's just be there with people. That's what Jesus did. He was, very, he was just there for people when they needed him the most. So let's, let's be like the friends. And then after that point, let's not be like the friends. We'll talk about why. Here's the one thing that I would say they kind of did an okay thing with. Now, it's the same thing they did, they did bad, but it's okay. What they did is they sort of tried to talk with Job through his suffering. When he was ready, when he was like, let's do it, right? They, they do that. I think that's, that, there's a place for that. There's a place for dialogue with people in their suffering. When they're ready, let's have something to say. Let's, let's think out loud. Let's have supportive solutions. Let's have maybe perspective, but let's be careful because then what they got wrong is what they said was just awful, terrible. The stuff they said to Job and about Job, awful. The advice they gave him, awful. And so let's actually, I just wrote this down. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. So if you want to skip the book of Job when it's time to read, I'm going to do a synopsis of the whole book right now in like one minute. Are you ready? So he has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are awesome names. Let's bring these names back, all right? Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. I'm going to give you a synopsis of what these three men said to Job. This was their advice. As a, I'm speaking as a friend, Job. I'm just saying, you know, it's like, wow, if you have to couch your words in that way, you know it's not going to be good. Here's, what, here's basically a synopsis of what Eliphaz says to Job throughout their dialogue. He says, Job, you have strong words, but weak actions and weak faith. He says, Job, the innocent people don't suffer, and you're suffering, so you must not be innocent. He says, God does good to good people and bad to bad people, so guess who you must be, Job? You must be a bad guy. Then later on in the second dialogue, he basically says Job is wicked, sinful, and guilty of sin. As a friend, Job, I just wanted to tell you, you're wicked, sinful, and guilty. Okay, I just want to let you know, as a, as a friend. And then the last, one of the last things that Eliphaz says at the end of his third dialogue, he says, Job, you must have sinned. There's no way that you are as innocent as you claim to be. And so he says, stop sinning, and maybe God will save you from your suffering. As a friend, I just wanted to let you know, God bless you, you know, Job, says Eliphaz. Terrible, terrible. Bildad is not really much better. He says something that's very interesting. The first thing that Bildad says about Job is, well, maybe you didn't sin, but your children then must have sinned. What's interesting about that is Job is so righteous. He even says in Job chapter 1, Job made sacrifices to God on behalf of his children in case they had sinned. 
So Job's like, I've already got that base covered, dude. Let's move on to your next brilliant idea of why I'm suffering. So I thought that was interesting as Bildad says this thing that Job's already been doing for years. So that's obviously not not the thing. Uh, Bildad then says, God will not reject a person of integrity. So guess what that means, Job? You're not a person of integrity, clearly. Then in a second dialogue, Bildad says, only the wicked are punished. Are you seeing a theme here? They have a, 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 wrong, a very wrong view about who God is. Only the wicked are punished, so Job, you must be wicked. And then at the very end, he says, we're all wicked and guilty compared to God, but clearly Job must be more wicked because he's really being punished right now. Again, as a friend, I just want to let you know, that's what I think. Zophar, the third friend, says this. This is, whoo, okay. Zophar says at the begin, at the very, out the gate, he says, I think God is punishing you less than he should less than you deserve. It's like, what do you know about me, bro? You live way out of town. You don't know anything about me. What kind of friend is this? Zophar tells Job to stop sinning, and then he ends it with this in chapter 20. He says that Job's suffering is his reward from God for his own wickedness. Again, Job, as a friend, as our, we're, we're your friends, man. We just have your best interests at heart. We just want to let you know how terrible you are, how wicked and sinful you are, and how you deserve even more punishment from God than he's living against you right now. Have a great day. I'm glad we came terrible, terrible. That's why these men are called miserable comforters. It's not an exaggeration to say these guys, again, are coming from a good place, but it's like, but what you're saying is garbage. I don't care where you're coming from. You come from a landfill with that kind of advice, obviously, right? So not good. The main mistake of the friends here is that they, pres- they presume to know and understand God's ways. They said, oh yeah, we got this whole thing figured out, Job. Our lives are great and your life is trash because we know how God works. And he's punishing you for all of your sin. They acted like they knew more than they did, which is when the fourth friend comes in. Again, he's a young guy. He even says at the beginning, I'm a young guy, but I know a lot. And I'm going to tell you everything I know. And again, it's trash. He's terrible. He doesn't know anything. And they were just really t- bad friends. But, so the first step they did was sit in silence. They should have done that. Like if Job were like four chapters long, it'd be way more better for Job to not have to listen to all of his friends dump on him the whole time about how terrible he is. So what that means for us, though, let's go back to if we're helping others through their suffering, let's like be very careful with what we say to them or about their suffering. Let's not try to presume to know the will of God for their life, or let's not presume to know every little thing they've done and, well, you did this and maybe God's doing that. Like they don't, they don't really need that, right? So let's just be there. Uh, we don't have to, again, give a theology of suffering. That's why I'm doing it here. So you can know that in your brain. We don't then have to tell to everybody, hey, call somebody up. Hey, guess what I learned? I know why you're suffering. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not why we're doing this. We want to allow God to speak to that person and for him to reveal maybe some things or some truth to them in their suffering, okay? So we can endure suffering better with a support system. So basically what I'm saying is Job's suffering was made worse with a bad support system. It was made worse with a bad, so let's not, let's not fall into that trap, okay? And, and let's not put, if we have those people around us, let's maybe put them on the back shelf or the back burners. Like, I just can't, I just can't right now, okay? That's okay. Reality number four, this is a big one. Suffering reality number four is God can take your questions, okay? Job 19, we're going to finally read something from Job, okay? Job 19, I think this is maybe one of the key chapters in this book is Job 19. Job 19, verses 7 through 12, here's what Job says. He says, I cry out help, but no one answers me. I protest, but there is no justice. 
God has blocked my way so I cannot move. He has plunged my path into darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He has demolished me on every side and I am finished. He has uprooted my hope like a fallen tree. His fury burns against me. He counts me as an enemy. His troops advance. They build up roads to attack me. They camp all around my tent. So at this point, Job is upset. He is depressed. He is angry. And I would say that's pretty understandable. But here's what I love and appreciate about God and the Bible in general and about Job specifically. There's two things I want to mention about this. The first thing about, I think, the Bible and the book of Job specifically is that it tackles serious topics. So people who have not engaged with the Bible but are averse to faith would say, it's just a book of feel-good fairy tales that just pump you up, you know, and it's just, it's opium for the masses, right? That's, that's part of this whole religion talk. And they just say, oh, it's just feel-good, goody-two-shoes, rainbows and unicorns. That's all faith. It's all the Bible is. And I would say, have you read Job? This book deals with serious issues like suffering, like sin, like pain, right? Heartache, it deals, it doesn't skirt these issues. It's not shallow in its treatment of them. And the Bible more broadly deals with other serious topics, suffering, relationships, morality, justice, even political topics. The Bible deals with these issues. And what it does is it helps us to then see them the way that God sees them and then to wrestle with them rightly, to deal with them and think about them in a serious way. So the Bible is not just this fluffy, you know, buttercup sort of book. It's a serious book that deals with serious topics. The other thing that I love about God and the Bible is that they both leave room for humanity. See, God as being the creator knows that we're not robots. God, being perfect as he is, made us with emotions, made us to feel. Now, sometimes those feelings hurt. Sometimes feelings are great. Sometimes we don't know how to feel, or sometimes we overreact and we don't, we, we, I misguided that feeling, that, that was wrong. But we see Job cry out here. When you read the Psalms, they're very emotional. You see key figures in the Bible that show emotion and have human flaws and frailties, but God uses them despite those flaws. God will use you despite your flaws. He'll use me despite my flaws. God can, he, if God made us with emotions, he can help us to channel those emotions correctly, use them in a positive way. And God can handle our questions. He's not offended that we don't understand everything. That's kind of the point. We go to him because he has all the answers to the questions that we have. And we try to search for them in other ways and other methods, and we come up short every time. We fail every time. It doesn't work. So that reality of leaning upon God is the point. It's not like a, a flaw in me. I don't have everything figured out. That's, that's how it works. And so I rely upon my faith in God to lead me in the areas that I have questions about or to answer the questions that I might have. Now, here's the one thing, though, I, I'll couch it with this. Here's the one place where even Job says he went too far. I think part of it is his friends started to rub off on him a little bit. Their faulty view of God, God only blesses the good and curses the bad, and God has this very black and white way of doing things. It starts to kind of creep in on, I think, his way of thinking, because then what Job does in some of his dialogues is he starts to presume to know God's ways himself. 
It's not just that he says, you know what, that doesn't sound quite right, guys. I'm not, I have to pray about that. I have to think about that. I don't know. He says, no, it's not this way. It's this way. All right. That's, and Joe even says later on, he says, I spoke without understanding. I went too far. So he even admits his own frailty in that. So there's a difference between our questions to God and our accusations about God. And there's sometimes a fine line there about not knowing why God does or doesn't do certain things and then shaking our fist at him in anger about him doing or not doing certain things. So we don't want to cross that line, but God can take our emotions. He can take our questions. He can take that. He, he's, it's all right. So even through doubts and questions, we want them to lead us back to God to expand and increase our faith. Here's the last one, and then we'll, and then we'll close today. The, the fifth suffering reality from the book of Job is this, and it's, this is the best news of all. Suffering doesn't have to lead to despair. Suffering doesn't have to lead to despair. Back to Job 19, later on. So this is Job. Job's just poured his heart out. He says, God is against me. He's actively against me. He must hate me, blah, blah, blah. A few verses later, verse 25 of Job 19, he says this. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. So in the middle of the worst suffering imaginable, Job was still able to see hope through that, past that. Job didn't keep his head down. He looked up. Job didn't look inward for comfort. He looked up. When looking around to his friends didn't help, he looked up. So we talked about at the beginning that this Satan word means accuser. Okay, we're going to come back to that right now. This word redeemer in Job 19 also has a meaning. It means advocate or representative. So Job has this accuser coming against him. He's not even aware of, yet his hope lies in an advocate that is fighting on him or for his behalf for him. So Satan is seen as a prosecutor and a persecutor, but God is seen as Job's defense and defender. That's, that's the important part that led Job not to despair, but to hope. He was somehow able to see through his suffering, past his suffering, into hope. And we can do the same thing. We can. Suffering is a reality, yes. Being good doesn't keep the bad away. No, in fact, it can do more harm than good sometimes. But here is what, let's close with this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Paul writing here, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. This is, I think, the, the future hope that Paul is expressing and explaining that Job sort of had a foretaste of. He had a vision of this. So we can, we can endure suffering because Christ endured suffering. So we know first we will suffer because Christ suffered. But we can endure because Christ endured. We can have hope because he has overcome. That is the same hope, the same joy that Job experienced. Now again, 
I'm not saying that it's going gonna, it's gonna to take away your suffering. Don't hear me say that. Please do not hear me say that. I'm saying in the midst of suffering that will happen, we can ultimately have hope instead of despair. We can have joy instead of sorrow. We can see what Job saw sort of clouded because he didn't know anything about Jesus providing hope. He didn't know about the suffering that Christ would endure thousands of years later that Paul talks about and we know about. But he still saw hope on the horizon. He still saw that in his life. So even if suffering ends in loss, it doesn't have to end in despair because Christ has overcome. So my cry, my hope, my prayer for us is that may our suffering draw us closer to Jesus who suffered on our behalf. And may our suffering ultimately lead us to the hope that is found in and only in Jesus.